0: Peace, peace, and welcome to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Today, I have the good brother, the good blessed brother, Carl Sherman Jr. I'm sure he's gotten the the Joe Carl's Jr most of his life,
1: <laughs> okay. but uh, even, even more so, my middle name is Oscar, so I got it all. <laughs> oh. Oscar Mayer, Wiener, like all of it, man. I'm
0: <laughs> Mr. Sherman is uh, a former member of the DeSoto School Board, native of Texas, um, family man, uh, businessman, community man. And I'm looking forward to learning more about him. Uh, we got the, the opportunity to meet through another trusted friend, Mr. Makai Ali. And, um, you know, I really love the the background of DeSoto. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to hear more about his service experience and what he sees for the future of his community. Mr. Sherman, thank you, brother. I appreciate you.
1: Man, it is an honor to be here with you. It's, uh, it's definitely my privilege, man. I look forward to the conversation. I was looking at your Instagram. Your kids are grown, bro. How old are your kids? <laughs> they are 12 and 10. Okay. And they, are, they are, you know, Trey, my son, he's the third and he's 12. And so uh, my daughter, Danielle, she's 10. Uh, my son, man, he's 5'5", five, five, 105 now, right? That's that's He just got his physical done. I'm like, dude, you are so much taller at this age than I was. Like, it's it's um definitely exciting to see him grow, man, see both of them grow. But, yeah, started out early. God just kind of put that on me, man. And I thank God for it, had them at 20, uh, I had Trey at 20. Mm-hmm. And so just I hadn't even figured out life right. But here I am having this blessing, man. It's just been it's been great to get to know him, to, to grow and just over their spirits it's crazy how they they help complete me man
0: because i was like yeah you young man you're young to have um to have uh because you look really young also but but yeah i guess i got i got the ages all together now did you grow up in desoto what's what's where'd you grow up
1: yeah. yeah i grew up in desoto desoto's home man my parents moved there in like 94 and so for for most of my life that's that's been where i've been
0: where were you before
1: yeah, so we originally grew up in, or not grew up, but we originally were in Hutchins. That's where we were born. Uh, like if if I were to say, where did they take us home from the hospital, right? Um, but that was that was a very quick time relative to the rest of my life. And then spent a couple of years out in Arizona for, for undergrad before transferring back. And so, so, yeah, most of my life has been in that 75115 zip code. So for people that don't know,
0: like, paint a picture of the DeSoto community. Like, what, what is, what is DeSoto?
1: Yeah, DeSoto is DeSoto is a lot of things to a lot of people, and depending on who you speak to, you're going to get a different response. What we're known, what we're known for, and uh, one of the things you brought out, like immediately when when I told you where I was from, was uh, we're known as an affluent Black community, middle uh, to upper income families and uh, Black families in particular that migrated to DeSoto, the first suburb south of Dallas. Um so if you kind of paint that picture, you literally drive outside the Dallas City limits, 15 minutes from downtown Dallas proper. And you've got this 21 square mile area uh that is primarily residential. Uh and uh and where we, we live. We're the last census a little over 70 percent African American as far as our demographic makeup, mm-hmm. above the state average in uh median household income. So and as as we dug deep
0: on that, you, you sort of talked about some of the dynamics. Um, beyond the black middle class that I thought was interesting. Can you, can you talk more about that?
1: Just like anything else, man, um, <laughs> you know, you have your averages, right? And, and averages are just that. It's a collection of everyone's inputs. And in DeSoto particularly, um, there's been a demographic shift, right? Just from a ethnicity standpoint, but also from an economic viability as far as what those households make and the income they generate. So you have a post-Katrina era and and then recession era, right? So post-Katrina, you had people moving up uh, from the Louisiana area, New Orleans in particular. Um, After that, you had the housing crisis, right? It was at 2008, 2009, in which you saw DeSoto leading the area in foreclosures and and people losing their homes. And so when you have a community that's 70% of their revenue, their city's revenue is based on residential properties. And you have so many vacant homes uh, and people displaced. You have that, um, that gap that was kind of formed there. And filling in, you know, filling in after that was new entrance to the city. And, you know, people look at DeSoto as, hey, this is a place I want to move. This is a place I want to raise a family, especially if you have um young african-american men and women who you're trying to groom for success right it's a suburban community um great educational system that dynamic there but with it you bring in different cultures you bring in different realities to come to a city and so now um you really have two a tale of two cities um Those that have been in DeSoto, I call them the second wave, right? My parents will be considered a part of that wave that moved in the 90s, uh, some in the late 80s, early 90s. And then you have the post um, kind of uh, uh, post-recession where those families moved in and they are not the same. And that's not a slight against anyone. It's just the realities, the cultural um, makeup that we have that we all bring to any conversation is different. And so there's a unique opportunity within our city to figure out how to communicate um, the level of expectation that we have for our community to grow with, uh, who we're going to be, you know, what we're going to provide as far as services for our community. Once again, you're heavy, um, heavy residential. And now there's a push for, Hey, what do we have for our kids? You know, what do we have for the next generation? What do we have as far as restaurants, as far as entertainment and all those things? And, Uh, what type of offerings do we want our students to be able to have access to once they graduate graduate high school and so there's a lot of conversations in a city that's just over 70 years old as far as incorporation um, that we have to have
0: yeah and i I want to get into your experience at the school board um you served two terms there and i and i you know i got the sense meeting you that uh your work in politics wasn't over or I don't want it to be over for you. You know, I don't know what you ultimately end up doing, but um, but I definitely uh like hear the way, hear the care that you have for the city and and the um the ideas that you have around improving it. Before we get into the school board stuff though, I do wanna ask you about sort of like some some of the some of your early influences around leadership. You know, like coming up, who were some of the people that You looked up to i know you have like a background in sports too so we can get into that but how would you respond to that initial leadership influence question
1: yeah yeah um first and foremost my parents um and for for two different reasons that um that you know i guess my mom may not be as obvious but i I do want to speak to that and then i'll get to a more larger context and, and try and be brief but um my parents my dad uh grew up he's the youngest of five uh, grew up in poverty, man. Um, Talking about holes and shoes. Um, mom was a cafeteria worker. His dad left them when he was five years old. Just um, just really in um, in dire straits for most of his life. Right. Um, and so he had me. I'm the oldest of five and, and my siblings and he actually stayed in the picture. Right. He, he was literally the polar opposite of all of his life experiences of what a father should be, uh, the type of engagement they should have. And, uh, and so you have this person who grew up in poverty um, in the south right here in Texas and at seven years old, literally pulled me out of school. We got on a plane, flew to Houston uh, for his first investors meeting or the company that he that he started that he would eventually take public, right? Uh, and so I saw his leadership traits um, on display. Our conversations at the kitchen table were different, um, I'm sure, than, than many families because we talked business um, at a very early age uh, and time, some of the dynamics that it took uh, to lead, not only an organization, but he was a leader in the church uh, as, an, as a deacon and then an elder. Um, and eventually a pastor. My mom, um, the same type of leadership traits from a different standpoint. My mom's from Chicago, man, she's from the North. And you know, you're well-traveled here in the States. People from different areas behave and move very differently. Um, and so I got that ambition, that drive, um, uh, the intestinal fortitude that it takes to start something, stick with it, finish it, and not care what anybody around you says, right? Uh, from her, um, her ability to, Lead and raise a family as my dad was out doing all the things, traveling and, and all of those things. She kept everything together at home. She was the glue that bound us all, and she was that person that pushed us to um, to challenge ourselves to do new things. Right, uh, so my first public speech was at like four years old. And that was because she made me, (laughs) she pushed me up there. Right. Mm -hmm. And she would very quickly tell us, you know, I'm not raising you to just get in line and follow because that's what everyone else does. I'm I'm raising you guys to be leaders. Uh, And so she did a great job kind of imparting that to us Um, outside of those two major influences. Right. A lot of them, uh, man, when you talk about our community specifically as, as a black male in America, America, a lot of those influences came at a later age and, and, and that came really, you know, more so college and later in life as I figured out who I wanted to be as a person. Uh, and so I would say Stokely, man, was was a major influence in my life because at a time where you had all of the different approaches, right? So you had Martin's approach, you had Malcolm's approach, and then you had Stokely. And Stokely, just, just one of the things that he said that just stuck out in my mind, man, is, um, you know, you have a fallacious assumption to think that America cares about people, right? And I was like, yo, this person said this, like, that they have a conscience. Like, America doesn't have a conscience. Institutions don't have a conscience. And so you kind of step back and look at life differently. Um, it's a different approach to addressing any type of issue that you have, which is calling it for what it is and then taking the steps necessary to deliver the change you, you want to see. And so, so he would be one that sticks out in my mind, man, is one that's an undercurrent. That really don't have an opportunity to talk about a lot publicly, um, uh, but yeah, I would I would say Stokely man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you go you gonna
0: take us in another direction. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I haven't had a chance either. But like at my school board meetings, I would say Stokely is the person I quoted the most. You know. Yeah. Kwame Ture. I didn't really discover him. I would say until college or post college, but um, his I really found him on YouTube. You know because you, you know you heard of stokely you heard of black power and you heard of some of the other figures of, of the time but to hear how um to hear about the the black panther party for political action in, in mississippi and to see him conduct these interviews how articulate and like um forceful yeah. he was uh it was like you know it was it was impressive and then and then i'm gonna say this this is not you know uh carl talking this is me when oh, go <laughs> for when, when bill clinton was talking reckless about him at the john lewis funeral i was hot i was like hold on bro <laughs> i was like hold on hold on you was locking us up and stokely was getting this free beloved what you talking
1: about <laughs> yeah 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 and it's not the first time the Bill has said something, former President Bill Clinton, I'll put some respect on it, right, on the, on the office. On it. But uh, <laughs> it's not the first time he said something reckless, man. But I, I think it speaks to, man, it speaks to our culture, right? And our responsiveness to advocates. I'm not even going to put air quotes up there, right? But people who don't have the cultural reality um, of us, the oppressed, just historically marginalized people. Um, but are thrust into the forefront to push for our issues, our cares and our concerns, right? There's just a different level of response and care that you have to look at people and say, you know what, this person's operating out of their reality, out of their context. And you know what, they may know a little bit more than I do on this subject because this is their lived experience. And of all places to talk about it at a funeral of another like civil rights leader at icon it's like.
0: Come on, man! I appreciate that you brought up Stokely, and that's like a a, a driving force for you. Um, but I, and I think hearing him for me was about like and, and Malcolm really was like the courage to call out like in your face, and and yeah. it be supported, you know. What I'm saying? And and there's like or this not. like go ahead, go
1: ahead, go ahead. I uh, know I just gonna say or not supported, like supported or not, like mm-hmm. you know. And and I know, yeah, we, I'm sure. Based on the way our conversation is going now, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about that as it relates to local politics and my time on the school board. But I'm sorry to interrupt you, man. Go go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, supported in the sense that, like,
0: what he, what the, he's saying, he's backing up. Like, it's like gotcha. there's like reason behind, you know, what's what's being said. And um, but yeah, yeah. Let's let's. Well, okay. So local politics. Go, go ahead. Now do it. Good.
1: No, no, no. I'm, gonna, I'm say go for it. Share, share with you.
0: No, well, uh, I wanted to get into that because I brought up Stokely when it came to my service on the school board, and especially around the, the conversation of what it, what integration means, um, and and you know the thing that I often quoted from Stokely was uh, a statement where he said integration is a subterfuge for white supremacy. Like the, the the discussion on integration is always about you know, black kids getting into the white schools, It's not about white kids going to black schools. Yeah. So this inherent sense of inferiority when you're talking about, like, the quality of schools. And so let's focus on making our schools great. And and it's it's like the same dynamic, like the same dynamic we have today. We just went through this whole, on our board, um, a restructuring of how we do student assignment. It's like the same conversation, you know, it's the same conversation where, we are basing quality of education um, on whiteness. And it's in its scores, but it's also whiteness, you know? <laughs> so, so like, it's always about like, oh, you know, how do we get these kids in there? Right. And, and because the reverse conversation is never, like people will just opt out. That's where Stokely sort of interceded in like my advocacy around this particular issue. How did it work for
1: you? And and I think you're asking specific to like, well, in this context, specific to how it showed up for me at this at the school board dice, right? Mm-hmm. Like how did it lead my interactions and things like that, man, which which is essentially what helped usher me out of the school board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is one I approached it from the standpoint of first of all, I was asked to run. It was not on my radar at all. Um, I I pride myself on being helpful to others, and I think that God's given me the ability to navigate through different industries, organizations, and have an impact, right? Because one thing I do really well, I feel, um, is I'm very self-aware, and I'm big on outsourcing non-core competencies, and a part of that is becoming a student of whatever it is I do. And so I approach this from, hey... I didn't want to run for the school board. You guys asked me to, you couldn't find anybody else. And months literally went on. It was like, okay, I'll do it. I told them, man, straight up. I said, y'all got one year out of me. I'll run for one year. Y'all gonna have to call a special election, do whatever, um, because it's not in my plans. Got on in a year, man. Went to my first black school board conference, NAPSE, right? And it was like, I'm listening to them. And I'm like, yo, y'all are right. Like as it relates to education, right? Specifically, how do we create spaces for Black students um, to have opportunities for Black excellence? And what does that really look like um, for them to be economically viable in their community, economically viable in life, right? And that goes beyond scope and sequence. That goes beyond the, what we call in Texas, teaks that you have to learn. That speaks to how do we address the cultural reality that is in black students' everyday life right now, and that is, they have to be two times as good, if not better. They have to go to the right school to be able to make it in certain circles, right? Um, and so, how do we tear down those walls, those barriers to entry in our community? And oh, by the way, I serve in a community that you know is economically doing better than any other community. Of Black folks, right, across the state of Texas, um, and is highly educated. So, how do I communicate to them that the way we've been doing things could be enhanced, right? And so, in that conversation, that led me to talk about things like how do we have a culturally responsive uh, curriculum? You know, how do our books show our culture? How do students see themselves in everyday interactions that they have on their campus? And that was a difficult conversation to have because, you know, in many cases, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And so some folks will say, hey, you're getting the results that you want. You're seeing, um, you're seeing the growth. Um, We don't have any issues, but really we do have issues. And, And so for me, it was leading those conversations, making people uncomfortable along the way, because at the end of the day, we we started out talking about my kids, man, you know, my kids get this stuff at home, but they really should be getting this stuff at school as well. Mm -hmm. And what happened is you have students who graduate who don't know who they are. They literally have no concept of who I am as a person, how it informs the decisions that I make in life and how to effectively navigate life. Because my reality is not the same as my white counterpart. My reality is not the same as my Latino counterpart. My reality is mine. And I have to be able to, uh, to once again, navigate those, those norms that I have as a person to effectively communicate and present myself in a way that, once again, the most important thing, I can be economically viable for my my family and those that are going to come after me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Economic viability. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm actually leaving the school board and and trying to do um, other types of work that speak to that. And so I want to I want to dive deeper on that and um, talk a little bit about the Desoto district. I think. Do you all have about ten thousand students? How many students are in Desoto district?
1: Yeah, man. With COVID, you don't know how many students you have. But um, but no, it it at, at the height of it. Uh, we were close to ten thousand students. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say the district right now is about eighty nine hundred, um, perhaps nine thousand. Uh, but yeah.
0: When when did you first run? What year was it? Ooh, two thousand thirteen, four thirteen. Yeah. Two thirds. Okay. And you have the Soto has three year terms. Correct.
1: It, are there term limits? No, no term limits. No term limits. And. And it's at large. I think you guys run by place out there, but... Uh, we're at you large in San Francisco.
0: In Oakland, okay. they have districts across the back. Gotcha. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. so we're at large.
0: And and how many members on uh, the Soto School Board? Seven-member board. Okay, yeah, we're also seven. So we're seven at large, and we stagger three and four. Are you all seven at once, or is it also staggered?
1: No, it's also staggered, yeah. Okay. okay. Three, two, and two.
0: All right, so 2013, you run... You're probably in your mid-20s, late twenties, right? When you run? Twenty-five. <laughs> mid-20s. <Mid-twenties.
1: laughs> yeah, yeah. okay. And smack on the duck. First time you went on the first on the first race? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I went on the first race, man. Ran against an incumbent. There were four of us in that race. And uh I was able to win. Yeah, I lost my first race. What did it teach you?
0: I don't want to lose again. That's <laughs> nah, I, I mean, you know, the, um, I, I think it was like I think it was Ultimately, I think it helped set me up for the second run. And all the lessons of that, you know, uh, I would break down, but I want to keep the conversation focused on you. (laughs) So 25, I guess you you have both your kids by now, right? Mm -hmm. And you're in your first term on the DeSoto school board. Uh, What is like... Walk me through the walk me through that first race. Like you said, people convinced you to run. What was that first race like for you? I don't
1: think anybody's asked me that before. What was that first race like for me? Um, so I'm I'm in a political family, right? My dad, uh, you know, was on the city council um, and eventually ran for mayor, won his mayoral race. So uh, from that standpoint, it was it was life as usual in that sense. Um, for me, I had a lot going on, man. I just, you know, had a career change, doing really, really well, uh, kind of in that new role. And so the campaign, if I can be really, really honest, um, I leveraged my support system a heck of a lot, man, to do the everyday campaign work um, that that most people can't say that they did. And, and now that you asked me that, and I'm being reflective of it, um, you know, I, I feel like I approach it from the standpoint of let the chips fall where they may. Um, I'm going to go out there, but at that time in my life, I was more safe uh, than I was really being true to um, to what I felt we needed to do as a district.
0: And in the, in the political family part, you know, um, I, I actually didn't know that your dad was
1: was mayor. He's mayor of Soto. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, the city city has term limits. They do. Uh, mm-hmm. He served two years as as uh, as our mayor. He was the first. Uh, African-American mayor elected um, to serve as a, in that role.
0: So it's a majority
1: black city and he was the first black mayor? He was, yeah. And at the time, it was pretty split. Okay. Um, we, we um, you know, I want to say there was more African-Americans, uh, but it wasn't a census year, uh, but it was definitely a changing dynamic. I mean, and we look at our yearbook now throughout the years and watch the demographic shift and change literally by, by the body, you know, the mm-hmm. students. And so, but yeah, yeah, he was oh, the first.
0: How old were you when he became mayor?
1: Twenty-two, okay, twenty-three, okay, so somewhere you know, in there. Yeah, yeah. What oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. I was an adult. <laughs> well, yeah, no. We we started his last term as president as um, as mayor. Uh, there was a year where he was mayor and I was school board president at the same time. So that was pretty pretty neat.
0: Now you talked about the influence of your parents in Stokely, but now hearing a little bit more about. Some of your dad's work—it sounds like he's pretty
1: accomplished. Yeah, yeah, no, I—I I, I like to think he is. Um, you know, he's—he's he's currently our state rep right now as well, mm-hmm. uh, so he's still in, in public office and, and fighting on behalf of, of the you know folks here in the local community. But but yeah, no doubt when you put it in context for um, his experiences just growing up, uh, there's no way that someone would say, you know, hey, this is gonna be the person that's gonna rise and ascend to this level. And you say you're you're the oldest of five? Yep, yeah, oldest of five, man. Okay. There's a full yeah. decade between the oldest and youngest, so.
0: Yeah, y'all really in the South. It's still got big families out there, man. Ain't nobody having kids up here, <laughs> <laughs> like. I,
1: man, I, you know, I I, I'm, not even gonna, I'm not even gonna respond to that in the way that I, <laughs> I, would, I would naturally, man. But yeah, yeah, no big family how how young is the
0: youngest sibling
1: yeah so he's 22. are they all in politics what's going on generally with people Um, no i'm the only one that did did politics um so so i'm the oldest 32 uh ryan my sister is uh we're 19 months apart um she's actually married to jonathan trailer who uh, is who i manage right kind of talk about offline um and so she's she does her own blog and wife and life and all of that good stuff. Leads to women's devotional. Um, and then the middle uh, is Ellis. He's a fireman in DeSoto. Uh, and so once dad was no longer mayor, he could actually work for the city. Right. So he, he did that. We're seven years apart. And then there's Erin and she is, man, she is living her best life. I love the spirit that she has, man. She just recently graduated college. And so she's she's literally taking this time to figure out what she wants to do and doing it on her own terms. So I'm like extremely jealous of her, right? Um, We are nine years apart. And then there's Jordan, we're 10 years apart. He's a police officer in a neighboring city. So everyone has in some way uh, a public service type of of impact and mentality
0: and and when we met you mentioned briefly that you played college
1: sports yeah Probably yeah now i i played at uh university of arizona and Basketball. i used to play loosely right so i got an academic scholarship uh and then i walked on to the football team uh and played one year and so yeah yeah, yeah. that was a that was a childhood dream of mine i said i want to play college football at some point and uh made it happen man and so you go back and where'd you finish your undergrad? I finished it at Northwood University. It's a private school uh, campuses in uh, Michigan, Florida, and then here in Texas.
0: You saw your dad, Mayor. You were president of the school board. Um, do you see yourself running for mayor?
1: You know, that's it's it's the timing of this is perfect, right? Uh, they just called for a special election. Our, our uh, mayor recently passed. And so, oh. so yeah, so... Um, definitely praying for her, for her family uh, in this season, but um, uh, yeah, there's a special election for that. I'm not running for it uh, right now, no matter how many people call me, and uh, it, it just I'm not in that space right now to do. It. You know what? What are some of the top priorities
0: you see for the city? It sounds like you know yeah. it intimately.
1: Yeah, um, we have to, you know, sure up ourselves economically. We talked about before you know, when you ask, hey, what industries do residents find themselves in. And the reality is for those high paying jobs, for those even uh, living wage jobs, now in a sense, most of our residents commute to some other place uh, for work, for their employment. And so that leaves a void within your city. And and it's something that people don't necessarily always think about. But if, if most of my residents are driving out of the city for work, that means they're eating out of the city for lunch. That means they're picking up their coffee closer to their job. That means that the money that they go to work for literally leaves our community five days a week. Um, And so that's extremely problematic when you're trying to attract businesses, when you're trying to attract the retail component that you need because you have no daytime uh, consumer. And so we've got to do a a better job, a more, um, more intentional job of making sure that we have opportunities for our residents to work, live, and actually play within our community. So, so that, that's the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is we have to um, sure up our gaps from an educational system at the early stages, early development, right? And why, does, why is that important for the city? It's important for the city because there are existing businesses within our community, whether those are early childhood centers, uh, development centers and wraparound services there. What type of supports are we providing for them as a collective city? Right. Um, And that goes beyond how we incentivize them. How do we leverage? Our nonprofits in our community? How do we leverage our private sector industry and institutions and our public school system in a one high school town to work together in some type of, you know, memorandum of understanding or whatever that looks like to once again provide wraparound services for our families. Um, so it was very big for us to do full-day pre-k when the state wasn't funding. And put all of those students on one campus and start at 18 months and say, we're going to start training these kids now to give them the vocabulary, the words that they need when they start kindergarten and be successful. And a part of that is, guess what? We just talked about the first thing. These parents are working out of the city. They need after school care. You know, what type of environments are they going into outside of that? Uh, and then the the natural retail component that we have to look at as well, and really leveraging the land here. And you don't know this right from Adam, but we have a major thoroughfare, I thirty five busiest state or busiest highway in the state, runs right alongside the outskirts of our city. What are we doing with that frontage road? How are we being creative and attracting new industry uh, to fill that space in a way that will benefit our community in the long run? And so part of that. It seems easy. It seems very simplistic. Uh, But when you dive into the culture of the city, the founding fathers and those that have uh, run the city for, you know, through the 70s and 80s, um, there was a desire to be a bedroom community. There was a desire to keep public transit out. There was a desire to do all these things. And that takes a, a mind shift. You know, you have to change the approach. And so I think that's what's needed right now. Especially if we expect our kids who go off to college or go off to to start life, to come back to the community.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you just laid out the platform for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it
0: sounds like I'll cook on Monday morning. Carl Sherman Jr. just announced his candidacy
1: for Mayor DeSoto exclusive for the people. <laughs> <laughs> Man, You know what? And it would I it would be idea. I hope and I and I would love to see that be a part of someone's platform because uh just if I could be real frank, and this is my, my conversation with po- folks in our community now, we spend time outside of DeSoto. We spend our money outside of DeSoto every day. And then people, the natural thing to ask is, well, why the heck do I live here? Mm-hmm. If I and when I ask my kids, hey, if you could pick any city, and I've and I've done this, if you could pick any city um, you know, where you want to live, you know where would it be? And when they get out of, you know, I want to move to LA and, you know, I like to live in Chicago for a minute. And we say, okay, locally, where? It's not DeSoto. And the reason is they don't spend time in DeSoto. When Kids have a birthday party. They're in some uh, surrounding cities. You know, when we go out to lunch, we'll say, hey, pick where you want to go. Uh, More likely we're in Dallas. We're downtown somewhere, you know? And so um, what ties do people have to community? If there's nothing that binds them there outside of a public school, Mm -hmm. right? At some point, that affinity wanes. And so, yeah, I would hope, man, that someone would take this serious, right? (laughs) And run it as a platform issue, but then more importantly, uh, take steps to to actually enact it. You sound like like, that was a good deflection, too. You're like, I'm
0: proud of this, bro. I was like, that was so
1: smooth. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs>
0: um, you know, I like I like the point though because we- I want to get into economic viability too before you finish because I-, I like I like what you're saying about spending money in the community and you know I think I I mean just going around today right like I I bought coffee I was three twenty five I spent the dollar tip I bought a few pieces of s- some few vegetables for a salad. I bought another salad somewhere else. Like I probably spent like 30 bucks today walking in this vicinity and all, none of the businesses here are owned by black people. Mm. I mean, it's been gentrified, but you know, if if I were getting my gas and going to start button and doing that, all that other stuff, building up other businesses, um, yeah, I could see that that could be, you know, especially, um, problematic. But one of the waves that's happened, especially in the Democratic Party, is this whole um, Democratic socialism. Like it kind of comes off of like as an anti-business, pro-tax agenda, which mm-hmm. um, which makes it really difficult for it, hurt, it hurts the small businesses the most because the bigger people can uh, afford to absorb the cost, or they figure yeah. out they have the resources to to maneuver around the cost you know and so like the the commitment to building a city that works business-wise is kind of like lost in the bay area like we don't have Mm -hmm. cities that work i mean cities businesses are here but the biggest ones are staying and and it's so it seems like in texas people still got some sense i don't know they could be progressive (laughs) and still not want to kill business yeah i'm saying that's what i'm hearing coming from you
1: yeah, you know, I I, I appreciate that, and um, and I wish I wish that it was a widely held um, belief. I'll say it in that way because on, on one end, and this is, and this is a problem with a um, two-party political system, right? Is that a lot of times the common sense things are lost, and it becomes a you know what what do the unions back? Okay, that's what the unions back. That's what we're rolling with. Okay, what does what does the business owner, the small business owner, back? Okay, that's what they. That's what we're rolling with. What are states' rights in all of this? Right, and so I think that a lot of times those issues become the issue of the day, but they ignore the real everyday concerns of people who the institutions are called to serve. Right, and that's without us getting into lobbyists. And just the ability for people to have access to elected officials, that's, that's not talking about that, that at all. But that is to say that local government, the beauty of it when we say all politics is vocal is that I should be able to reach out to my city council person. I should be able to reach out to my mayor, my school board official, my state representative. Uh, hopefully, you know, congressional districts are a little bit larger, more dense in population. But you should have some level of access to them for the everyday concern to be heard. And, you know, a lot of times when it comes to our response from, once again, elected office, it's, it's driven by businesses and institutions. And So then you have to look at the policy, you have to look at what's in place and figure out who it benefits or whom does it benefit, right? We had a presidential candidate say that, that uh, corporations are people, too. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying that's the reality that you have to be prepared to navigate. And the people who have the resources to navigate it best, the ones that come out winning and come out ahead. And so how do you create a local eco, ecosystem that benefits the people in that community, right? Where they can, you know, I know in your sense, it's gentrified, but even within that, how can you keep that money in the local economy? And then, how can you get people who live in the community to be more representative of the business owners who are there, right? Um, and not just someone that comes in with the resources and says, "I'm going to open up shop in uh, this black community or this Latino community, even though I'm not culturally representative of the people that I'm called to provide a service for." Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's it's a difficult thing, um, in my opinion. Once again, just because of the construct, a two political party system um, does not represent what's needed for individuals uh, completely. Yeah, I actually, I'm one of the few people maybe that actually read Ice
0: Cubes, what he's been pushing out around the contract with Black America. Yeah, and, yeah. And, um, you know, written by really re- respected academics, uh, not really old ideas, like very like familiar ideas, people that actually read it. and And it got wrapped up in this like, this finessing like oh, he's with Trump thing, it really got just like lost, you know, yeah, but what what I appreciated about a lot of the tenants of that uh agenda was um, a focus on economic development for the black community and mm-hmm. and the need for capital injection, and like a, a lot of the a lot of these policies that are well intentioned that uh you know whether it's like minimum wage or health insurance or like uh whatever, whatever the thing is to 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 make sure people who are working can afford to do what they do um you know that running something and being profitable to actually keep it going makes it difficult you know unless you like unless you can raise the money from some other place and you and you're you're already familiar with this you already you already know some of this stuff. A lot of the people that run businesses in in this community, this neighborhood that I'm in, uh, you know, they don't live here, and I and I'm like, oh, that I mean, that's probably smart, <laughs> you know, <what> I'm saying, <laughs> like, like they, <laughs> you know. And then I was talking to the grocery store person, and, you know, I'm like, how do you hire someone to work at a grocery store in San Francisco? Hmm. Like, where where are they commuting from? Because you you don't work at a grocery store. This is like a a very big assumption, you know, Yeah. but basically the average rent here is $2,800, right? A month. So you're going to work, working $15 an hour, $17 an hour, making, paying $2,800 in rent. That don't make any right. sense. Like where are they living and how do right. you work at it? You know? So I got a lot to say. I don't know. Yeah. What, what's your response to me? <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no. You, you're, you're spot on, man. And, and um, I feel like this is a conversation many people don't have. And I really appreciate it, uh, appreciate the opportunity. You can pick up on people who are very intellectual and studious and measure. Um, and when I say measure, not from a, a standpoint of caution, but measure in the response to get the whole complete picture before they actually open their mouth to say something. So in full disclosure, I haven't read Ice Cube's, um, uh, his full statement on the plan for Black America. I, I haven't read it, but I also haven't commented on and, and that's because, once again, I haven't read it, but I know this about people and what I learned that was increasingly frustrating over my last couple of years in, it, on, in service, and it changed the way I navigated things is, people don't read. Just people flat out do not read. And so they're being dictated to uh, from a media talking head or influencer who may not be well-versed in the subject, um, who is going to pick up whatever clickbait there is to put it out there and we take it and run with it. Here's a reality. Um, while I'm a registered Democrat and listed as a Democrat, I'm pro my community all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And the reality is if Trump came to me and said, Carl, You know, we're going to support your candidacy uh, for mayor of DeSoto or for whatever office. And and we're going to let you stand on whatever values and how you feel like you can deliver your community and make it more economically viable for the years to come. I don't care. and I probably shouldn't use Trump. Right. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my community should trump whatever the resources that's coming in to support it. And if I've got access to a Trump White House or a Biden White House or uh, a Kamala White House, whomever it is, it's important and incumbent on me to leverage my access to be a benefit to my community. But many cases we ignore that, man. We just, we just, ah, oh, I'm not going in. Ah, you, you, you got me going, man, because it's so disheartening to hear it and see it. And you push back and you say, well, what about this? You know. What about this tenant? Did you think about this? Oh, I don't know. I just know, you know, Trump ain't for us and Biden ain't for us or this person ain't for us. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to navigate the next four years, no matter who's in this office, the next three years, no matter who's in this office to get what you need for yourself and for your people? Um, And once again, I feel like that's a lost art these days. And, and, and it goes back to it two-party system. You know, it's it's putting ourselves in corners of the room and then saying, okay, you know, after the election, we're all going to come to the center. But the way things are, as polarized as our country is right now on issues that, that have varying levels of importance in the everyday interactions in our within our communities, um, that has severely limited our ability to be at the table to get what mm-hmm. we need done.
0: I completely agree. And the, I mean, when it comes to partnering with Trump or Biden, like whoever is going to help the people meet objectives for the people, like if the people are the objective, then it really shouldn't matter. And um, part of this game that's problematic is, you know, if you're in the seat, people say stuff. And maybe they actually believe it, but maybe they they don't, and they're just saying it to appease the base. They don't want to like get rejected by their base or whatever. So, you know, um, they can't publicly, uh, they can't even like seek collaboration. It's like mm-hmm. career detriment to seek collaboration with somebody that is from an opposing view. And you know, like I I had on um, editor in chief of the Root on the podcast. Like back when the pandemic started, the truth is when Trump got elected, media won, like they all had record profits, and the clickbait was crazy, right like he he made a lot of media people really rich, yeah, of like the fears of like what he was doing right, and yeah. the group was a part of that, and I you know, and so I was trying to like get the lady out she's so sweet, I was trying to get her to admit that trump's like, it's something that Trump did that that was like, okay, you know what I'm saying? And not that I was looking for her to, because the re- the reason why I loved uh, what she represented, what the paper represents, was because she said that we don't care, like, anybody can get it. Like, if over our people, anybody can get it. Right. So, over our people, if if anything happens, that's a W, then, like, we got to, like, hey, thank you, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't care. Who he is? If he letting out people out of jail, thank you. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Black, yep. black college's money. You know what I'm saying? So um, so now that he's gone, right, right? This we recorded this post-election, it's not really relevant. But what 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 I'm what I am concerned will happen is that people will go easy on Biden and Harris. You know, all that energy they gave toward Trump. Yeah. hysteria they're gonna go easy on them and yeah. and they're gonna go back to sleep you know yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm hoping is that they keep that energy like you was
1: all upset keep that energy you know right right <laughs> and, and then you have to point out what were you upset about mm-hmm. like it's it's we we're good and I say we just we as as people um in a busy busy world with a million distractions, right? Uh, and news every day of the week, we are good for hollering when it hurts, but not sticking around to see if we fix the thing that actually hurt us in the first place, right? It, we get we get excited, we're going to the polls because this, that, you know, and then we good, we got there, what policies coming out? What changes are, are really gonna be in place to affect us? You know, um, it, it's, I hope for a new day, Um and and I think if if I can just be real candid, it's gonna be more of a shift in our elected officers and officials that we put in these positions to keep that energy going. Because it's very easy to get in there and become complacent if your heart wasn't there in the first place. Uh, because we know they can go have a stump speech in one part of town, say one thing and then go to the other and say something completely different and marry it and, and you know excuse it away with semantics. Um, But you got to look at the policy that's coming out. What are the tangible, you know, results? What are the measurable goals that this person brought to office? And what are we coming out with? Uh, Because once again, don't slap a D on it and just think that it's going to be good. And it's going to be all right. Because, you know, it's just not always the case.
0: We're approaching the top of the hour and we have our rapid fire uh, that we're going to walk into. Um, Before we do, you know. I, I I really like Texas, bro. Like I like I haven't seen all of Texas, but I love Houston. Uh, I love Dallas. I haven't been to Austin. Um, I'm hoping to visit the Soto at some point, but it sounds like I'll go to DeSoto Soto
1: and go back to Dallas. <laughs> That's what it sounds like you <laughs> I'm I'm gonna take you to the best places to eat in the Soto, oh. man, and and we'll and <laughs> have a good time there, and then I'll drive you back to your hotel in Dallas. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll spend the rest of your trip outside of the city, right? Uh, no. <laughs> well, under under
0: the the Mayor Sherman administration, you know there'll be hotels in Dallas in Desoto for me to stay at. You know, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, man. Um, so rapid fire, are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. Do you meditate?
1: Absolutely every day. Gotta have it.
0: What's one book you would recommend?
1: For so that I don't repeat what's already been said. Um, uh, story the true stories of an economic hitman
0: what personal weakness can you forgive in someone
1: just about everything do you have a motto no no motto man it's it's taking every day every season and taking the motto that applies to that
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> okay last and final question uh the, the house is on fire all the family and <laughs> the pets are out <laughs> uh, what's
1: three things you grab the safe um Honestly, I, I struggle with everything else, right? It's, you know, just, you know, it is, it is what it is. And a part of that is our generational thing. Just about everything's digital these days and I can recreate it. So.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. That was rapid fire.
0: This was Carl Sherman Jr., Carl, Carl Oscar
1: Sherman Jr. <laughs> yeah. All the first names, all in combined, <laughs>
0: um, Former president of this sort of board of education. Future mayor, um, you know I'm just gonna put that on him. Just put it on, <laughs> uh, family man, good brother. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate you.
1: Hey, the honor was mine, man. It's been a privilege. Thanks for having me.
0: Peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year we can change our lives. I'd also like to thank, of course, our listeners. Thank you. Please consider subscribing to Kiko Monday Morning, the YouTube channel, if you haven't already. I'm grateful to you, and I appreciate your continued support. Share the podcast with a friend. Uh, help us grow our community of doers. And you know, if, you listen, if you're listening via audio, also hit subscribe or rate and review it on Apple, if that's how you enjoy the podcast. Now, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. You can find the description in the box below. It goes over the equipment that we use and some book recommendations that could be helpful in considering an approach for you. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive social impact. Uh, we do that by building strategic partnerships between businesses and government. Uh, we recruit diversity talents at high impact roles, and we help companies drive impact in the communities where they do business. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email. I'm at info at I'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible, our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, sir. Our copy editor, uh, Fernando Sico Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both. Now I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. They are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our rideshares, delivering our food. To all of you, this podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn, and also uh, shout out to our folks on the continent of Africa, uh, Nigeria, and also, you know, in the islands in Jamaica, uh, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to because of you. Until we meet again, peace, peace, and we out.